one of the things that's encouraging me is regenerative agriculture is one of the few things I've ever encountered in my life that doesn't seem to have that big of a trade-off. It is better for the animals. It's better for the environment. It's better for the consumer. It's better for the rancher. I mean, it is truly, if done appropriately, and I think that this is partly because it just, it comes from nature. And regenerative agriculture is one of these little, little secrets that we need to tap into. And I think we're getting, we're on our way. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we speak with inspiring leaders, innovators, problem solvers, and job creators, people across the country who are making the world a better, more sustainable place, and making good money while they do it. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan, founder at Consensus, and today I'm talking with Lou Mormon, co-founder of venture capital firm Scaleworks, as well as investment fund Soilworks. If you take a winding road west of Austin, south toward San Antonio, you'll find yourself in Texas Hill Country a magical place with rivers and state parks crisscrossing some of America's best ranch land. It's the land that Lou Mormon has known his whole life. From ranch kid to regenerative ag champion, Lou is hell-bent on proving there's no beef between livestock and natural climate solutions. And it's clear from his story that innovation in this burgeoning agriculture sector can lead to great capital returns, great food for Americans, and a better path for the planet. So, today we're serving up a guilt-free range burger with a side of sustainable success. I can't wait to talk to Lou. My favorite question to start with, good icebreaker question. Could you give us your first job, your worst job, your best job, and your last job? Okay, gosh, my first job. So my first job uh, was a manual labor job. I worked for a landscaping company, and I did it in the summer in Texas. And I was on one project the entire summer, which was digging tree holes um, on a parkway for a new office park. And uh, it was ridiculously hard and hot, uh, but uh, I gained a lot of appreciation for manual labor and working hard and being out in the sun. Next one is worst job, then best job. This is usually where we get the gems, I got to be honest. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, mine will be very different. Uh, You know, one of the most coveted jobs uh, still to this day, which shocks me, is to be a McKinsey consultant. And I found it to be the worst job I ever had. I didn't enjoy it. Um, the work product was uh, PowerPoints. It wasn't for me. Um, you know, it was really mostly uh, doing a lot of thinking. I wasn't really qualified to do it. And we presented it like it was authoritative. And most of the time, it wasn't listened to. So um, I didn't really find that to be that rewarding. So I, I, w- I wasn't there very long. I actually share that kind of mentality. I, I know, as, as we spoke, my first decade was as an investment banker. And... That would be my answer to the worst question, also, which it, which is a heavily coveted job. But um, I think, for very similar reasons, and I think with very similar experiences, even in a slightly different line of work, um, that was definitely my worst job. It's shocking to me because if you look at the last twenty years, pretty much all the action's been in the entrepreneurial world, and yet if you go around to talk to kids graduating from college right now from top schools or or top of their classes they still want to go to Goldman or McKinsey. It just shocks me. Both of those companies, I think, have brands and reputations that have been somewhat tarnished over the last 10 years, and no one enjoys really working there. Uh, but it's still a hell of a credential. Yeah. All right, so now we get to do the fun ones. Best job and last job. Um. Well, I mean, look, you know, 
my current job is uh, running Scaleworks and Soilworks. Uh, so it's my last job. I think it's my best job too. Um, so, you know, I really feel like um, I like being my own boss. Uh, I've got a great partner who I work with all the time. We work on things we want to work on and I'm working sort of at the right altitude in terms of being able to impact the big decisions, but not operating every single day. I feel like it's, it's sort of me at my best. It's a good segue. How would you, um, in an elevator, describe Scaleworks? So Scaleworks is really micro private equity. Um, so um, in the software space, uh, we buy very small software companies that are generally at a crossroads. So they're usually five to $10 million in revenue. They're not really fundable. You have founders that um, have to reset their thinking, getting tired. Um, and we, we buy these companies usually for relatively cheap. And our mission is to grow them, is to get them ignited on a new path. And so we're not, we're not classic private equity guys in that we cut costs and optimize cash flow. We invest to grow. So we hire people, we put new teams in, we try and figure out a strategy to, to grow the companies. And so we, we will tend to grow them, you know, three, four, five X, and then we'll hand them off to the next owner. And, um, anyway, it's a, it's a really great space. It's a lot of fun. And we tend to buy companies that have had huge ambitions. And one of the things we very quickly do is just say, Hey, look, let's go win one vertical and go do it really well or one niche or one target customer. And, um, you know, if we take a $5 million business and turn it into a $20 million business, we do really well. Whereas many of these companies, um, had been funded to become unicorns and they're just never going to be that. So, um, it actually is a great model and it's a lot of fun and we can make a big difference really fast and we create jobs and, um, it's actually been great for our LPs too. Yeah. I, I have been increasingly um, dissatisfied with the, with the focus on the unicorn. Like that's the only thing that matters. And I think it, leaves a huge field of opportunity for ambitious investors and operators who can build really great businesses. The fact that a lifestyle business that earns someone seven figures a year is disparaging is just baffling to me. And I think um, maybe limits our perspective as to what good returns could be and what it looks like to be wealthy versus what it looks like to be a unicorn or not. You know, we've, we've gotten really myopic in our definitions, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's, there's the, the, the world needs all sorts of businesses of all sizes, and there's lots of ways to generate returns. You know, I think for me, it's back to matching sort of what I like to do is, you know, I was in a, um, in the earlier part of my career, I, I was at a company that I was, you know, employee number 25, and we grew it to 6,000. And, um, you know, the, the problems we had at the end of that journey were much less interesting to me than they were at the beginning is that running a, a, a billion dollar plus revenue company is, is just a lot different type of work and didn't suit me. I, I don't think it was me at my best. Whereas these small companies that are, you know, very small, $5 million, $10 million, trying to figure out how to get on a trajectory to be a 50 or $100 million company, that's actually just more interesting work to me. And um, a lot of these companies were left for debt. So the fact that we can sort of revive them and start creating jobs around them again, it's pretty rewarding to me. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. So I think that's actually a perfect segue to hear a little bit more specifically about Soilworks, because I think it probably informs a little bit of how you've applied a systems approach of thinking from your framework at Scaleworks into the regenerative agriculture space. So can you give us a quick uh, summary of what Soilworks is? Yeah, I mean, we can get into how I got interested in regenerative agriculture, but over the last five years, me and my partner became really interested in regenerative agriculture. 
ScaleWorks is going great. We've got a machine. We've got a team. We know how to run the model pretty well. And we started thinking about were those the things we wanted to work on. And regenerative agriculture was one of these where we became obsessed with the concepts. They've been around for two decades. They're proven. And yet they have not hit the mainstream. They've not, they've not really done much beyond become sort of a hobby uh, type of practice. And the food output is really only at farmer's markets. So it's extremely niche. And we couldn't figure out why, because it's better for the land. It's better for the farmer. It's better for the consumer. And um, it really hadn't gone anywhere. And we sort of looked at it. We went, you know, we're business people. What this really needs is some capital and some business sense. And we kind of, you know, we're sort of, I guess, arrogant enough to think that we might be able to have an impact on it or at least get it going, you know? And um, look, it's it's the food industry. It's the ag industry. These are enormous industries. And we knew we were just going to be a little small part of it. But if we could maybe be the spark to get some things going in the right direction, uh, we thought it could it could be lucrative and a lot of fun and impactful. And uh, that's a pretty good combination. It's a rare combination to find that. Yeah. I'd say two things really drove me to it. One is my wife had a bout of very bad cancer about 10 years ago. She got diagnosed with something called neuroendocrine cancer. Uh, it was on her pancreas. And it's a very rare form of cancer. It's actually what Steve Jobs had. And she had two-thirds of her pancreas removed. And there really is no chemotherapy or radiation for this cancer. So it's it's not something really that can be treated except for surgery. And she got her primary tumor out early, which is nice. And then they said, look, we'll see. It's, pro- it's probably a better 50% chance it comes back. And we'll just keep an eye on it. And she became obsessed with figuring out what she could do to make her body inhospitable uh, for cancer. And so she became extremely obsessed with chemicals in our food and the, cu- the current industrial system. And because of it, I became very interested in it as well. And one big element of that was grass-fed and pasture-raised uh, proteins. So she really felt that based on all the research, the phytochemicals and all the nutrients that exist in grass-fed beef were really important to sort of uh, making her body healthier. And uh, so that was that was one stream of activities that got me really interested in the food system and what was wrong with it, because we have a food system that's powered by enormous number of chemicals and, you know, a lot of bad processed food, a lot of empty calories, a lot of low nutrient food. And I think it's causing lots of problems. And the second piece is I, me and my wife bought a piece of land in the hill country here in Texas about the same time she got sick. And my family had been in ranching when I grew up and we had, like most ranching folks in over the last 50 years, we overgrazed the land and, and I saw it degrade over, over a lifetime. And when me and my wife bought this piece of land, we said, you know, we're going to be good stewards of it and, uh, we're going to be, great stewards by taking the cows off because it had been overgrazed as well. And, um, you know, we thought we were heroes and uh, aren't we good people? And what we quickly found after about two years is that we had grass that had kind of piled up, mostly weeds, but uh, grass and weeds pile up and just sit there and become a fire hazard. And the ecosystem didn't come back to life at all. And uh, that's when actually my partner gave me a Joel Salatin book and said, hey, there is a way to graze animals correctly and to try and mimic nature. And this is when I got introduced to the principles of regenerative agriculture. And I started to implement these strategies on my land. And I've seen a lot of improvement. And I got to know a lot of people in the space. And we just, me and my partner just kept talking about it. And we just kept saying, how can we make this something that is 
uh, real and can help change the food system because it's got all these other problems. Can you give us the history of how Grassroots Carbon came to be part of your portfolio and tell us a little bit about the origin story? Yeah, you know, just to give a high-level overview of what regenerative grazing is all about, it's really trying to mimic the way ruminants would graze naturally. So, um, you know, in America, we had somewhere between 70 to 100 million buffalo roaming through the grasslands of this country. And when we got here, you had enormously rich soil that was the largest carbon sink uh, on the planet, really. And that was all done by grasses, soil, uh, microbiology, and animals working together to create that. And when we put fences up and built cities and killed all the buffalo and brought other animals, we changed those grazing patterns and our grasslands degraded quite a bit. And we lost a lot of carbon. And one of the really exciting things about regenerative ag is you can replicate that using, you know, grazing practices. You can, you, you move the animals, you let the land rest. Um, there's a whole bunch of practices involved in it. It's not very complicated. But when you do it, you start to build soil, you start to sequester carbon, uh, you start to retain water, you start to build biology. Um, all these things really happen. But it is, it is true carbon sequestration. And um, I was a customer of a company called PastureMap. Um, PastureMap was started, you know, about 10 years ago to help people manage their grazing patterns to do it correctly. And we ended up buying that little company. And uh, we knew from the beginning it wasn't something we were going to go charge ranchers a bunch of money for. We wanted to make it very low cost. And eventually we wanted to give them money for doing things right by being a carbon business. And we ended up meeting um, some folks in Houston that started a company called Soil Value Exchange. And they came out of the energy industry um, on the sustainability side, trying to figure out how to sequester carbon. And they'd come to the same idea that regenerative grazing could do this. And they had generated a lot of interest from the corporate side to buy these credits. And so we had supply, they had demand, and we merged this into a new company uh, called Grassroots Carbon. And today we are, you know, we've paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars to ranchers. By, by the end of this year, it's going to be millions. Uh, we have customers buying carbon credits you know, Shopify, Marathon Energy, a bunch of others we can't quite name yet, but uh, there's a lot of folks we're talking to. And we really feel like we have the highest quality carbon credits out there. And these ranchers are getting real money. And it's really getting the attention of those ranchers that have always heard about regenerative grazing, uh, but have been a little skeptical. But when they think about getting real money to do it, they're starting to really be drawn to the space. And I think we're going to see a lot of acres convert to these good practices. Is there a, a theory that you think um, that you would pitch to other investors when it comes to why they should look at portfolio companies in, in this space, in, in agriculture and regenerative agriculture? Well, one is it's just enormous industry. <laughs> I think the second piece is there is real forces driving change. It's not just the consumer who wants a better product, wants a more sustainable product. It's also governments who are pushing for it. The winds of change are in place. And the changes aren't minor. Um, this is one of the things that's I think is important to, to, to recognize. It's like it's a little bit like we think about the world of when we went from on-premise software to software in the cloud, you know, big deal. It sounds like a small deal, right? Well, that turned out to be an enormous change. <laughs> Every single leader in the second version of it was different than the first version. And that, I think that that's the, the way this agricultural change is going to be as well. It, it really potentially brings together a whole host of stakeholders from 
a lot of different places um, who oftentimes aren't on the same page. <laughs> Any theory on how we do that? You know, I think change happens by entrepreneurs having small success, showing that there can be a bigger success, chipping away at it, making a difference every little bit of the way. And then you start to build, you know, sort of agglomeration effects, which is the people start to, to come on and want to be a part of it. People want to tap into it. People want to add scale. And as you get scale and systems in place and carbon credits and more sophisticated ranchers and, you know, all these things in place, that delta will start to come down. And I think that that's just how it happens is that everyone starts to see that there's a market, that there's a way to do it, that, you know, we're not really in competition with each other. We can all make it better and bigger and work together on it. I think that that's kind of how it happens. I'm curious, you live in a state that's incredibly dynamic with a variety of, I mean, economies, communities, perspectives. Um, how do you keep the conversation going and productive, you know, with such diverse and sometimes adversarial voices and um, all kind of at the table together? I think some of it is that I, we just don't really engage in religious war, really. You know, I mean, I, I think that there are going to be folks that there is just nothing we can say to make them think that there's any room in the food system or on the planet for these animals. And, you know, I, I just don't know that that's really where the, the, the battle should be fought. I, you know, they have their point of view. I don't think they're right, but I respect them having that point of view. There's a lot of folks out there that recognize that the industrial food system is the issue and you've got to make a transition. And uh, that we tend to have those arguments because those folks say, look, we believe in regenerative. It's actually very powerful. And we've been to some of these ranches and they're beautiful. And you can see the ecological benefits that are happening, but they go, it'll never scale. And that's an argument we can have um, because we think it can scale. And, um, you know, but, but I understand where they're coming from. You know, they say you've got to have that density of those feedlots to feed the world. And we don't think they're right. But it's a, that's a reasonable argument. And you're, you're, at that point, you're arguing about operational details and, you know, and, and it's going to be up to us to prove that over time. And I think that that's the, the healthy place to have the argument. And so I think we engage where people can be persuaded and can engage in, in meaningful dialogue on it. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, we've all spent the last few years working through some existential crises, both uh, as a country, as a globe, at home. How have you, navigated that and any any big reflections coming out of the last couple of years of existential dread for so many people <laughs> yeah you know i mean look i live i live in a place that got over covid faster than most so we've been living a pretty normal life for some time you know i my concerns really are you know the big problems still remain i think what i'm nervous about is are we able to engage in dialogue and really try and solve these problems? We've figured out so many ways to kick problems down the road and hide them and obfuscate them. And in COVID, we had a hard time having dialogue about every aspect of it. Do masks work? Should you get a booster? Should you, I mean, whatever it might be. And we, I mean, we can't even have a dialogue about these things and complicated things are complicated. There is not a black and white truth to almost any of these hard problems. And if we can't get into a dialogue around, you know, what is the right set of trade-offs to make, I think we're going to struggle. 
you know, one of the things that's encouraging me is regenerative agriculture is one of the few things I've ever encountered in my life that doesn't seem to have that big of a trade-off. It is better for the animals. It's better for the environment. It's better for the consumer. It's better for the rancher. I mean, it is truly, if done appropriately, and I think that this is partly because it just, it comes from nature. And regenerative agriculture is one of these little, little secrets that, that we need to tap into. And I think we're getting, we're on our way. There's, there's more momentum than ever. I mean, I, I've gotten to know some of the, some of the guys who've been in the space for 20 years, Alan Williams and Gabe Brown. I mean, these guys are heroes and they've been doing it for, for decades. And, you know, they will say that they could hire a hundred consultants to help them teach people how to do these practices. That's very encouraging to me. Have you found any surprising allies? Uh, folks that you didn't necessarily know or, or think would be champions for um, regenerative ag? That's a good question. I'll tell you, we've had surprising enemies. You know, the tech industry, it's funny, we come from the tech industry. The tech industry is extremely skeptical of nature-based solutions. You know, they want to find a, a piece of technological wizardry that is going to solve this problem. Some carbon-sucking machine or some microbiology reactor that's going to create something special for us to eat. And by the way, there might be something that comes from those things. But I think that there's a lot of these things like photosynthesis and soil and the gut of a ruminant. You know, th these are technologies that have been perfected over millions of years <laughs> that do all the things they want their machines to do. And if we harness them correctly, they'll, they'll make real progress. But that we find that the, the big technologists who've wanted to invest in the impact space are extremely skeptical. That actually has been a surprise. Um, I think the press is pretty skeptical, particularly when we're talking about animal proteins. It's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of headwinds in terms of people's preconceived notions. And um, that's okay. Look, I do think the government... In the new, some of the new bills, there's, there's quite a bit of funds for sustainable practices, regenerative practices. These words are getting used. We'll see how the money's spent. But I, I do think governments are waking up to the idea that there are new practices and the agricultural system is going to have to shift over time. Now, I'd rather than yeah. remove the subsidies for the industrial system than add a bunch of new subsidies for us. But hey, it's a start. Yeah. I was going to ask that actually. It seems like I'm starting to hear more about just hear the term more nature-based solutions and feels like policymakers are looking to find ways to support the solution perhaps. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah. I mean, look, I think part of what we want to do is put our heads down, do the work and, and prove that there's success. And, you know, we're, we're working with these ranchers and, and we're doing soil sampling and, and, you know, we're hoping to show that, look, you can see there's more carbon in that soil we could really scale this. And, you know, governments could have a, a big role to accelerate it. There's a lot of incentives in the current system that are government-based that, that make change hard. So um, it's one of those headwinds that, that makes it hard. And so if they could, if they could reverse those, that'd be, that'd be terrific over time. What's the kind of one thing that you want to make sure gets conveyed to folks who are at home listening? You know, I think our biggest sort of contrarian thought right now is that business can drive change faster than almost anything. And markets and companies meeting demands of customers is a guaranteed positive trade always. There's accountability to it. And business pointed in, a, in, the, in the right direction is an unbelievable force. And there's a lot of negativity about 
corporate America and business. And some of that's very, you know, well-deserved. And I think we're exiting a period of mass financialization where uh, we used financial structures and too much Goldman Sachs investment banking uh, structuring and not enough actually building things and making things happen. And I think we're ending that period and we're going to get back to who's growing food, who's building the next generation of products, who's actually doing things. And I think the business is, is the answer. We got to get people who are excited to build things. And it's okay if they make money doing it. Um, if they make money doing it, they'll, they'll do it faster. So I think that that's really sort of one of our big beliefs is we're just big believers, entrepreneurs and companies making the changes we need the world to make. So it doesn't mean that, that activists and nonprofits don't have a role. They do. And they can point people in the right direction. But if you don't get the business models changing, the change is very small. It just doesn't really matter. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. So we really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Well, I appreciate it. Huge thanks to Lou Mormon for a fun and spirited conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. This episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Chandler Bramstead. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week. Hold up. 